Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, Lord willing, we'll look at the first 16 verses of this chapter. The title, Walking in Unity. In Ephesians, there are seven, seven different references to walking. It's a picture of the Christian life. Just like a walk, you have a, a beginning, there's a destination, and in the middle, there is a journey that takes place. And we're on a journey. Aren't you glad that you know your destination as a believer? Well, here, walking in unity, as we walk along together, we want to walk together. We want to be unified. In chapter 4, Paul urges the believers in Ephesus, and by extension, because this book was not just written to them, it was written to all believers, he is urging us to walk worthy of our calling. First of all, we see an exhortation to keep the unity, verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 4. Let's just read those first three verses. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all loneliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice the word worthy here, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. The word worthy is, is a word that means uh, as becometh or in balance with, in accord. The worthy walk is, is something that we are urged to do. Paul is beseeching us. The word vocation here means your calling. Uh, what God has given you to do in your life. Each of us has been gifted of God, been called of God as, as believers to do something for him. And so we're to walk worthy of that vocation. Notice the word at the end of verse 1, the word called, is actually the same original word as the word uh, for vocation. And so what he's saying is walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. It simply means live up to your calling. Watch how Paul makes this plea for them to walk correctly, to walk worthy of that calling. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. What an interesting way to urge us to walk a worthy walk, to walk a unified walk. We often evaluate people based on what they do. If you're flying on an airplane and you're sitting next to the person, a lot of us put the earplugs in or start reading a book saying, I hope they don't talk to me until maybe the end of the flight and in the last minute, you, so how are you doing, you know, and let me give you a gospel track. We often ask what they do. Uh, we're, we're, we're interested in, in, in what do they do for a living. A woman once asked Albert Einstein what he did. He said, I study physics. And she said, oh, I took that years ago. <laughs> we form opinions based on what people have accomplished, what educational degrees they may have achieved, what schools they went to, or if they're in the military service, what ranks they've achieved. We tend to hold up successful musicians or successful athletes. And we think since they're successful, they must have something worth listening to. They must know what they're talking about. Paul says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. What an interesting way to start this plea. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 1, 
The book starts, the epistle starts to the church at Ephesus. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then when you turn over to chapter 3 and verse 1, we see, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And then in the verse we're in, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. He jumps from Paul the apostle of Jesus Christ to Paul the prisoner of Jesus Christ and again the prisoner of the Lord. The idea in this verse is to persuade people to walk a worthy walk by which God has called them, not because of who Paul is as an apostle, but because of who Jesus is. The urgency of the play is seen in the word beseech. It means to call to action, to beg, to plead. And so, as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, a prisoner of the Lord, he's begging us to do what we're called to do. Notice the specifics of the plea in verses 2 and 3. There are certain attitudes that will be evident when you walk according to God's calling in your life. With all loneliness and meekness, that speaks of humility. With long-suffering and forbearing, that speaks of our patience. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of, of peace, that speaks of our effort. Three attitudes that we're to have in our walk, each believer, in our walk and in our calling to serve Christ. First of all, humility. Humility is a characteristic that promotes unity. Here are two words that describe humility, with all lowliness and meekness. Humility, I, I find it interesting, is this first step, that as he's urging people to walk a, uni, a unified walk, walk in unity, walk in love, that this is the first step, humility. Selfishness and pride promote disunity. Humility promotes unity. The word lowliness here, is an interesting word, it's a, a word that Paul makes up, because there wasn't a word to talk about humility in, in the Roman world, uh, in the New Testament times. The Greek and Roman vocabulary it didn't have, they, they didn't want a word because that was degrading to, to be humble. So Paul forms a compound word, uh, two words, to think and then low. To think low, it's a decision of your mind to put yourself in a lower position than someone else. It's emphasized with the adjective, all, all lowliness. Consider yourself lower than everything else that there is, everyone else that there is. And then the word meekness. That's not weakness, but it's strength under control, gentleness. Well, you might say, that's not what our postmodern society is used to. We wouldn't have any word for it today. Uh, today you have to have a good self-image. You're going in for a job interview, you need to have the right answers. You need to promote yourself. You need to be bold. Let them know all of your accomplishments. Here's a question. Do you think God knew what people would be acting like in our culture when the Lord told Paul to write the scriptures, Philippians 2, 5 and 8, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus? Of course he did. The truth is for us. If the truth is for our present culture. We're to live humble lives in lowliness and meekness. 
The lawyer Edwin Stanton was cruel in his criticism of Abraham Lincoln. Stanton called Lincoln a low, cunning clown and the original guerrilla during his campaign for presidency. Later, when Lincoln appointed Stanton as U.S. Secretary of War, his friends asked him what he was thinking. Why did you do that? And he said he was the best man for the job. During the Civil War, Lincoln got caught up in a situation where he wanted to please a politician. So he issued a command to transfer certain regiments. When Stanton received the order, he refused to carry it out. He said that the president was a fool. <laughs> Can't get away saying that today about our president, can we? Lincoln was told what Stanton had said. And he replied, if Stanton said that I'm a fool, then I must be, for he is nearly always right. I'll see for myself. As the two men talked, the president quickly realized that his decision was a serious mistake. And without hesitation, he withdrew the order. When Lincoln died from the assassin's bullet, Stanton was leaning over him. And looking down, he said, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. Are we humble? Do we have a lowliness of, of our mind? Unity comes through humility. We also see the, what promotes unity is this attitude, the second attitude of patience. And under the patience, we'll see long-suffering and forbearance. Long-suffering means taking a long time before you lose your temper, before you get angry. It's one of the characteristics of genuine love found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4. Charity suffereth long, same word, and is kind. In 1 Corinthians 13, the word long-suffering shows up with that word kind. That word kind means benevolent, useful, beneficial, helpful. It's no surprise that this same word kind is also seen at the end of chapter 4 of Ephesians. The last verse sums up this instruction on walking in unity. Ephesians 4.32, a wonderful verse. I hope it's underlined in your Bible. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And then here's, here's the point that really strikes home. Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Humility and kindness causes one to be patient. Aren't you glad God is patient with you? That patience led to your salvation. Another passage, Romans chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness? The word goodness there is the same word as kind that we've already seen in Ephesians 4.32 and 1 Corinthians 13.4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? Same word that we saw here in Ephesians 4.2. Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? If Christ was long-suffering with us, if he was patient with us, shouldn't we be patient with others? What a way to promote unity among the body of Christ. Magicians use a paper that's been treated with nitric and sulfuric acid. It's called nitrocellulose. It's often called flash paper, or I think I've even heard it called cotton gunpowder. 
It bursts into flames when it's touched with a match, and it'll, it'll flash and burn before it even hits the ground. In 2003, B.F. Goodrich developed a product called Fire Rock. It was originally intended to be used on the U.S. naval ships. It's based on uh, an inorganic resin system that won't burn, it won't produce smoke or toxic fumes or generate heat when it's ex uh, exposed to extreme heat of fire. Fire rock composites perform at temperatures of up to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. When I thought about those two objects, the fire rock as opposed to the, the flash paper, I wonder what kind of reaction do people get from us? Do we explode? Do we fly off the handle? Or are we like that fire rock? So, patience. And then another word, forbearance, that speaks of our, our patience, long-suffering and forbearance. Forbearance is, is also a word that shows up in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. To forbear means to endure, to hold up against, to put up with. It's translated with words like suffer, bear, forbear, endure in Scripture. John MacArthur says, Forbearance throws a blanket over the sins of others, not to justify or excuse them, but to keep the sins from becoming any more known than necessary. Well, we deal with sin. We don't sweep it under the carpet. But we don't make a, a public display of it. So we have humility, lowliness and meekness. That promotes unity. We have patience, long-suffering and forbearance in love. That promotes unity. And now, notice now the effort in verse 3. Here's an attitude that, that also shows us that we have to work at this. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring has the idea uh, of, of doing something quickly. Not putting it off, putting it at the top of your priority list. Endeavoring. Use speed. Make an effort. Be prompt with this. Be earnest. It's used in 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God. That Awana verse that we, we memorize. It's the word study. Be diligent. Do this quickly. Do it now. Notice also endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We need to, to put that as a priority to keep the spirit of unity. Now notice, the Bible doesn't say that we're to, to make the unity. The Lord does that. He puts us into one body. He unifies us as a church. And we're to keep the unity. You can't force people to have unity or to get along. You may as well try to tie the tail of a dog and the tail of a cat together. Are they do they have unity? No, they're, they're in union but they don't have unity. There are three characteristics then, three attitudes that promote unity. This is the way to walk, to measure up to God's calling. You want to obey God's call to unity? Then you must have humility. You must have patience. You must make an effort.
That is the exhortation to keep the unity. Now we come to verses 4 through 6, and we see an illustration of unity. There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There are two of our deacons that had a, a fellowship dinner yesterday. I was invited to it. I'm not in their deacon care group, but I'm glad that I was invited. Harold brought the challenge, and he touched on the unity of the fellowship and the body of Christ. He used 1 Corinthians 12, 25, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Here in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, we see a great description of that unity. Did you notice how many times I, I read the word one in verses four through six? Seven times. A sevenfold picture of unity, an illustration for us. And, and we're called to one body. There is one body. All believers of all ages make up the body of Christ. Local churches or assemblies make up the body of Christ in that particular place. But when you think of the, the universal church, the body of Christ of all ages, there is this tremendous unity. No matter what languages are spoken, no matter where they've met, no matter what time in history, they have all been placed into the body of Christ. And someday in that glorious day in heaven, we'll look around and see millions of people who are united in the fellowship of the body of Christ because of salvation. There's one body. There's one spirit. Here he's talking about the Holy Spirit who's placed us into the body of Christ. The third is one hope. One hope of the, of the calling, an upward call to heaven, I believe. Philippians 3.14, Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And that high calling is that calling upward, our call to heaven. The fourth is one Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 4, uh, 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name given under, uh, under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. The fifth one is one faith. Probably not talking here about our faith in Christ, but the body of revealed truth, the faith. We stand in the faith. And then sixth, one baptism. And so people here will argue, okay, is that talking about water baptism, all you Baptists that are out there, or is it talking about spiritual baptism? My answer to that question is yes. <laughs> spiritual baptism is the reality. Water baptism is the outward testimony of that reality. O'Brien writes, the apostle is not making distinctions as to whether it is water baptism or baptism in the spirit that's in view. The one without the other is an anomaly. <laughs> the last is one God. And when we come to that and we look back, in verse 4, there was one spirit. In verse 5, there was one Lord. And now in verse 6, there is one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all here in this matter of unity, the Trinity, is a unity, all three in one. And then this description of God, who is above all, that is his sovereign. We submit to his authority as the almighty king. That brings unity. When we submit to him, we are 
servants of his. We do his will. So he's sovereign. He's above all. He's through all. That speaks of his omnipotence. He's able to do anything that he pleases. And we are unified in that dependence on his power through all. He is in all. That speaks of his uniting presence with us, his omnipresence. What a great illustration of unity. Now we come to the last section, verses 7 through 16. And there's an explanation of diversity in unity. The ability to preserve the unity is God-given. It's given to each person in perfect measure. Notice in verse 7. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. The word grace is charis. That's where we get our word charismatic or the gifts that God gives. And so unto everyone is given that grace or that gift that God wants us to use for his glory. He's given you exactly what you need to serve him in a specific capacity to serve him in unity. So it's given to each person in, in perfect measure, verse 7, given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. You say, well, I don't think God gave me enough uh, grace to do this task. You could never say that. He always graces you to be equipped for every work that he gives you to do. Notice, secondly, given by Jesus Christ when he conquered sin as the victor, verses uh, 8 through 10. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And there's this parenthetical statement, verses 9 and 10. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is also the same, or the same also that ascended up far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now in the early church teaching, the Old Testament saints were taken into a, a place that was kept in, in Sheol until Christ came and purchased their redemption on the cross, and then they were led out of that captivity as captives of his. It seems like the Ephesian context is, is not saying that in particular. Some people will use that section. But he, he descended to the lowest parts of the earth. He came from glory to earth, and that's the incarnation. And that's the wonder and the beauty of Christmas. And then he ascended above all heavens. And so because of that authority, he is able to give gifts unto men. So it's given by Jesus when he conquered sin as the victor. Notice the purpose of unity. It's so that we will equip and strengthen other members of the church. Different individuals are given to the church. And he, he talks about those in verse 11. Now, there are five different passages in the New Testament that talk about spiritual gifts. This one in Ephesians is talking about the gifted men that God gave throughout the ages, throughout the history of the church. And so those are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. The other passages for spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 11, and then at the end of that same chapter, verses 27 through 30. Gifts are also mentioned in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, and in 1 Peter 4, verses 10 through 11. And you can get a chart and see where those spiritual gifts, what they were as they were given. And some people have some gifts, some people have one, some people have a combination. Everyone is gifted according to the grace that God gives us. And so these are particular gifts to the church. When he says he gave some, 
he said, he's talking about some churches. He gave some churches apostles. He gave some prophets. He gave some churches evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, notice the apostles and prophets. Those were foundational men in the church. Look back at chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. He's talking about this unity that we have in the body of Christ. And are built on the foundation of who? The apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the household of God, the church, is built upon the foundation of the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles. There are men that God ordained to give us what's recorded in Scripture. And now we have the Bible, and there's no further need for apostles and prophets today. But those given for the church age are the three mentioned next, or the two, as I, I feel, evangelists and pastor teachers. And because of the grammar there, I believe the pastor is to be a teacher. And uh, so we have evangelists and pastor teachers. Now, where does it put the rest of church members? We'll look back at verse 7 in chapter 4. Remember, unto every one of us is given grace, according to the measure, perfectly measured out by Christ to do a specific task. We're to be fully mature. We're to be stable. We're to be 100% sold out for Christ. We have the grace to do that. So we're united in different individuals making up the church. Also united in the purpose of the gifts, verses 12 and 13. Why do we have these gifted men that were given to the church? They were given for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so pastors and teachers, uh, evangelists today, are given to perfect, to mature, to help us to grow as believers. And then why do they do that? For the work of the ministry. You say, well, I thought the pastor teacher was supposed to do the work of the ministry. No, we're to teach so that others can be perfected to do the work of the ministry. And then for the edifying of the body of Christ. So let's look through that. The perfecting of the saints. Again, perfecting means in scripture it's used to mend. It is used to equip. It's used to restore. And so as God gifts people in the church and they are fulfilling that obligation and that calling. They are able to restore. They are able to equip, to set in order the work of the church for the glory of God, perfecting of the saints. Notice, for edifying, edifying of the body of Christ. To edify, an edifice is a building, something that is, uh, has a foundation and a structure. And so we're to be strengthened. We're to build up the body of Christ. Church is made up of people. God wants us to build lives. Our focus needs to be to help people grow spiritually, to mature in their walk with Christ. We can't do that if there's not unity in the body. We can't do that if we genuinely don't have a love for one another. What's the result of using our gifts? a unified body that is accomplishing God's work. Notice the goal is for all believers, verse 13, until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. I find it interesting that Paul uses the word we. He's including himself in the believer. says he hasn't arrived yet. 
No one exempt, is exempt from this need to grow, to mature, to be better today than you were yesterday, to do more for God with the gifts that he gives this year than you did before. So until we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, there is a completion in maturity. And in this completion, I see five areas that uh, we are to be unified in. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so uh, we, we are mature in our unity, united in faith, united in the knowledge of the Son of God, in unity, in growth, unto a perfect or mature man. That we may grow up in him in all things. God wants us to grow and then in Christ's likeness, verse 13, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You think, well, you know, I'm not doing too bad. But when you look at our example, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the stature, that's the measure that God wants to accomplish in each of us. And I have so much growing to do, don't you? When I look at him, I say, oh, I wish I were more like him. And we sing, oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer. That should be our, our heart cry. So we're to be uh, completing this maturity or letting God complete this maturity through, through the body of Christ in unity, in growth, in Christ-likeness, and then in doctrine and in love. Here, unified not only in the body, but unified in our beliefs, in truth, and in love. Verse 14, speaking of doctrine here, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Not as children. I love watching children. I think the older I get, you can't be, you can't be caught at the, at, the, at the mall as a grandpa watching kids. I love to watch them, but you have to be careful nowadays. Uh, not as children. But when you watch them, uh, you see an immaturity. Uh, you listen to them. I'm tired of doing this. I don't want to do this. I'm hungry. I'm, I don't want... They're just whining all the time. Give me something new. We're not to be that way in church, are we? We're to be mature, not as children. Consequently, those who are not mature are carried about by every wind of doctrine. They're fooled by the slight of men and cunning craftiness. Interesting words here. The word slight there is kubea. It stands for a cube which was used as dice for gambling. So we're not going to be taken in some kind of a gambling, oh, I, I lost everything. Not taken, not fooled by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby these men lie in wait to deceive. That's the intent of a lot of religious movements of our day. They're out to trick you, rob you of your faith. The cultists are getting converts, not from unbelievers, but from churches. It's unfortunate because people are not mature in their faith. So the remedy against that, be complete, be mature, be grown up in our doctrine. And then in love, verses 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head even Christ, 
from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying itself in love. Here's the evidence of maturity. You will live truthfully, speaking the truth in love, telling people what they need to hear, in a, in a way that will not drive them away, in a loving and honest way. The evidence of maturity, to live truthfully, to submit completely. A loving church submits to the, to the one who's in control, the body of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the body, the head of the church. You'll unite perfectly. A loving church is closely knit in fellowship, and you'll grow constantly. A loving church is healthy in its growth. May the Lord help us to be unified as the pattern is given here in Ephesians, to walk in, in this calling that God has called us to, to a place where we have a unity in, in this assembly as well as the entire body of Christ worldwide that the world would see as they did in the early church. They knew they were Christians by what? Their strong stand? their lack of compromise, their love. All of that's important, but let's do it with love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to be united. We know that you have placed us into the body of Christ. We recognize that you have gifted each individual member to, to be a part of this body in order to build it up and to encourage and edify one another. And so I pray that you'd help us to have that humility that it takes to work with others, to live with others, to encourage others, and, and they the same for us. And may we see the Lord Jesus Christ exalted and recognized as a church that has love. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.